My guest today is Neil Chilson. He's a former Federal Trade Commission acting chief technologist and is now a senior research fellow for technology and innovation at the Charles Koch Institute. He's here today to discuss privacy and antitrust regulation as it pertains to big tech and artificial intelligence. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we dig into some of those issues and perhaps some I didn't mention in the intro, uh, let me let me start with a, kind of a broader question. It seems like it wasn't that long ago that America's largest technology companies were seen as sort of national champions. They're like the crown jewels of the American economy. Now it seems like in almost every story about the economy, they're the villains of the piece. They're um, generating inequality, subverting democracy, destroying our privacy, endangering our jobs, creating a surveillance economy, perpetuating bias, uh, particularly against people on the right. Uh What happened that they went from the good guys to seemingly the bad guys? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I'm I'm not a historian, um, but uh, one of the trends that I saw um, was that the, you know, Silicon Valley was largely stayed out of the political game um, for quite a while. Uh, The early days of these companies were were, uh, permissionless, and they were in a permissionless environment. They didn't ask... Uh, they didn't ask to try new things. They tried new things. And that was in part because of the policy environment that uh, Congress and the administration, actually the Clinton administration, had set up uh, in the mid-90s, which was quite advantageous to uh, information and Internet company services developing. And so the Internet would be lightly regulated. Exactly. Yeah. The decision they made was that the Internet will be lightly regulated. We will uh, use traditional consumer protection approaches to deal with any harms that, that occur. But we didn't come, but, I need to come up with a whole new regulatory regime. We didn't, we didn't need a uh, department of the Internet. We were just going to kind of use existing law when applicable. Right, exactly. And in, in addition to that, there were some additional choices that Congress made around how liability would be applied to platforms um, in the Communications Decency Act. And some of those choices uh, paid off very well. That's why, that's why we got the Internet that we have today. It's why the U.S. is the... Uh, the leader in the tech sector. S- something changed. Uh, some of these companies, as they got bigger, uh, started to get a little more involved in Washington. And uh, early on, um, as I think new industries maybe uh, historically do, uh, they, 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 they weren't very savvy about how to do that. And so uh, in, in some ways, that's a positive from my mind. Uh, you know, not being that familiar with how to pull the levers of government is, is Probably a good thing. Uh, businesses often should stick to what they're what they're good at, which is making things for consumers. Uh, but what that meant, I think, is that they put a lot of their eggs in uh, one set of baskets, right? And and when that uh, changed, when that uh, when either um, you know, elected officials didn't, um, I, I should say, they put most of their ba- their eggs in the Democratic basket. Right. I was going to ask you what, I was asking <laughs> yeah. what that basket was. I was going to ask you what that basket was. On the basket, label on right? that basket. And so, and so when they got involved, that's, that's sort right. of the side they got involved in. Um, and uh, I think that was part of when, uh, when there was a change in administration, I think that was part of um, uh, sort of people trying to figure out and explain how that happened. Uh, and some of these big companies, which have been. Uh, extremely successful and still are very young, um, mm. became the most obvious sort of point that people could point at and say, well, I think they must have been part of the problem. Right. And do you, I mean, do you think we'd be having the same kinds of conversations? Uh, you're speaking of the election if there was no evidence of any sort of, you know, foreign interference uh, on some of these platforms. If 
these companies weren't quite so big. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is it's it's. I think I think you're right in the issues that you brought up. I think also you had sort of the election and how it went down, and also just the sheer fact that they're so big. I, I guess I don't see how you could have a situation where you have you know trillion dollar market cap companies that are everywhere in our lives that are who are constantly you know interacting with their products via our phones, where there wasn't going to be where they weren't going to somehow end up in that in that spotlight. I think that's right. And it's interesting because these companies, they are very big. Um, but there's also other, there's other very, very big companies that are also, we also interact with their products every day, but they don't have the same sort of brand with us. So like, you know, if you think like Johnson & Johnson or Exxon, they're, they're giant companies as well, but we don't interact with them like face to face. And so these companies, because we interact with them face to face, because we use them in such a, uh, a direct way and we know their brand, I think when things go wrong and because they're big and powerful, we think, hey, maybe they should try. Maybe they should do something to fix it. And right. So I, I tend to think like when we when when we when uh, an automaker has a, re- a product recall, um, you know, something's wrong with the seats or they need to replace steering wheel or, or something. I don't. I don't sense. Uh, even sometimes when there's actual physical injuries, I don't sense the sort of the same alarm and panic. No one is saying, uh, let's break up Ford. Uh, we need to have some a new regime to, to regulate the automakers yet. When anything goes wrong with these companies these days, uh, there, there seems to be something almost bordering on hysteria that, uh, see, we've told you these companies are too powerful. We need to act. We need to act now. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not fully sure where that comes from, but I do think that you, you've seen both on the antitrust side and the privacy side, um, these are big clubs that government can use against business. And so uh, it's no surprise that literally the same voices are asking for antitrust and privacy because these are big, powerful tools. And so they want to do something. These are the tools that, they, that seem available to do something. And so I think they're, they're trying to grab those levers and... And use them. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned two things which I'm, I absolutely want to talk about. We're going to start. We'll start with uh, privacy. Are you as a, a user of these uh, products? I, I assume that you probably have a Facebook account. I know. I know you have a Twitter. Account. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, sure, obviously, you use Google. Are you Are you concerned that you have these companies vacuuming up, or as they would say overseas, hoovering up uh, uh, your your data? To what extent are you concerned about your data and what might and what is being done with it, whether it's things you don't know or even what you do know, the fact that they're using it for, you know, ad, you know ads and there may be, uh, it may be going elsewhere that you never anticipated. Are you concerned about that? Well, the, the, way, I, the way I think about uh, interactions on the Internet and the data that's being generated from them is, um, and this may be because I have a, a computer science background, uh, people don't often think this, but when you're on your computer or on your phone interacting with Facebook or Google, you're literally poking around on somebody else's computer. You are using their computer to do something. And, um, and so in some sense, it's the, the proper metaphor for that is, is like walking around in a, in a retail store. Um, how much uh, is this my, is that my data, the fact that I'm using their service, the fact that I'm interacting with that service? Is it their data? Like that, that sort of uh, metaphor, the metaphor in my mind that I think of is that it's sort of jointly produced data mm-hmm. and that this company um, is monitoring how people are using their services to try to provide a product that, the, that will keep users coming back to their service. And so for me, I largely r- rely on the brand trust. Um, I trust these companies, um, not implicitly, but understanding the context of what I'm, what I'm uh, interacting with their computer and getting a free enterprise-level service for the most part um, 
I, I love to point out uh, anybody who w- works for a private employer uh, or even a government employer should compare the uptime of their, their work email to Gmail. Um, and they get Gmail for free. Their company probably pays a ton of money for, for their email service. And so, uh, so we're getting enterprise-level uh, services in many cases um, based on a observation about how I'm moving around the internet so that somebody can target ads at me. I'm pretty okay with that deal, and I think many Americans are as well. And so, do you, so you feel um, that, to the extent not not to the extent that you know that uh, Washington activists care about privacy, which seems to be consider- seem to be considerable, but for the average person, you sense that they understand well enough how their data is being used and can and have enough sort of tools at their disposal to. Um, uh, to, to to change how that data is used, um, so well, not, not sounds like you don't think there's much of a problem. Well, I I, I do think that consumers uh, the surveys show that consumers care a lot about privacy. Right. Um, surveying is very difficult to get what a revealed preference is, right? right? So somebody might care about privacy, but how do how do they want to act on that? How much do they care about privacy compared to other things? And so uh, it can be hard to get at that from surveys. Um, I think. Consumers are very concerned about things like identity theft, where money they might lose money, or health, uh, you know, health information getting out there about them. Right. Um, these are very rare cases. I think if you ask people, do you like targeted ads? Consumers tend to be much more positive on that than on things like identity theft. And so, it's not that there's no problems, and it's not that consumers fully understand. I certainly don't fully understand all the ways that information about me are being used by other people. But that's the challenge of interacting in a, you know, in a free society. We, we can't control everything. Um, we have uh, institutions in place that try to set the proper incentives for people. Um, but we should realize that we can't control everything. Uh, and we should do our best to be informed and make choices. But balancing the many, many values, not just privacy, but things like uh, convenience, um, security, uh, uh, price and balancing those and letting consumers be able to make those choices, um, uh, not just about privacy, but about all of those product dimensions, I think is really important. So then how, how do you understand or think about the complaints about privacy? Is it just people who just sort of don't like, you know, the sort of the, the business model that these companies have? They think there's just something implicitly wrong about you know, using that data, certainly without cutting people checks, that people should be paid for that data and and the free services just isn't enough. How do you think about those complaints and the kinds of harms which are being alleged? Uh, Because I I assume there are harms being alleged Mm -hmm. because as as a reason sort of motivating this this concern about data. So how do you you think about those complaints then? Well, um, so I I, I think the the, another – there's a lot of evidence that consumers have very widely privacy, very widely different privacy preferences. And so I think there are some people who have really strong privacy concerns. Um, and there are other people who care, you know, who will post everything on Instagram and, and, uh, and from like what they've had for breakfast right, to, for sure. you know, what their kids are doing. Right. right. And so, um, so there's widely ranging privacy preferences. And so the way I think about it is we should try to find a system that allows the maximum of those preferences to be expressed. Um, we live in a we live in a, a world that has constrained resources, and so you can't get everything that you want ever. Um, and so people always complain, for example, about the price of gas. Um, uh, but we know that price 
uh, price, you know, setting price caps on gas doesn't work well to ensure that we actually get the right amount of gas that people need. And so, um, so rather than trying to do one set of decisions that apply to everybody, uh, the, the goal would be to set the defaults um, in opt-in or opt-out or choices right. around privacy um, to match with the general preferences of most people. And that's kind of the, the approach that the Federal Trade Commission had taken in its guidance around, you know, using opt-in information for sensitive information right. uh, like, you know, real-time location or health or financial or passwords and and using opt out for other types of but some people would put that op- they would put the opt in that 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 should be the default that this is your information you own it someone else wants to use it they need to ask your permission and they need to ask your permission pretty much every time they use it that that is one standard. What's right. wrong with that standard? So, because sort of yeah. intuitively, that that seems right. Like this is, hey, this is my info. You're right. you're going to make money off it. Well, then ask me at least. Right. Well, so uh, two two responses to that. First is the to go back to my my previous point about is that your information? Does that metaphor work well? Um, when I post a picture that I took to Instagram. The metaphor works pretty well there, right? I took that picture. I, I created it. It's something I contributed. Right. Um, if I'm browsing around websites and and uh, the it's saying, oh well, Neil went to a website that you know where they're selling sneakers, and so he might be interested in buying sneakers, uh, and that's attached to me. Again, that's calling that my information is sort of like saying that this podcast is my information, right? Like it is. Sure. It is not. <laughs> it has information <laughs> about me in it, right? right? I've contributed to this conversation, but uh, for me to call it my information is probably, you know, it's, it's basically a direct, uh, it, it conflicts with other people's uh, values and other people's interests as well. And so, so that metaphor doesn't work perfectly on, on the rest of it. I would say, Again, the defaults should be set to where the average person is while allowing choices. That's why opt-out allows those people who are super sensitive about a certain issue who say, I want to be asked, they can do the extra work that it takes to opt out of a service and do that. Now, the reality is some of these services simply don't work unless you contribute your information. And so asking asking a company to, to make decisions about, you know, like, make sure my account is secure without me being willing to contribute that where my location is um, as, as a possible way that they verify that means that the service might not work as well or it might not work at all. And so, um, so consumers should be aware uh, uh, that there is that trade-off there. Do you, do you think there is, there's some other business model that would, uh, that would work to replace sort of the ad-driven targeted ad where they use your data to give you really specific ads. Is there is there another business model out there waiting that would uh, uh, that would work for these you know these very big successful companies that would still allow them to you know invest you know billions of dollars in R and D? Is that because it seems like people are very interested in tearing down this model? Yeah. I'm not sure what what's around the corner. No, it really is. It really is interesting to me how much of this, even though the if you look at the harms that people. Uh, point to when they're calling for legislation or whatever. They're the they're the worst of the worst. Many of them are already illegal in many cases. Stalking, um, you know, uh, 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 saying somebody's uh, medical diagnosis is online. Um, but 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 most of the motivation is around the companies are are not doing that sort of thing. They're doing targeted advertising, which again is a way of taking information that nobody knew was valuable. Right my web browsing history, and turning it into enterprise-level services. I don't know of another method that we could plop in today that would solve that. Subscription-based methods, 
um, companies are trying them and companies are experimenting with things like micropayments. Mm-hmm. Maybe that will work. Um, but I think that the, some of the transaction costs in, involved in direct payment from a consumer to a content provider make it very difficult to see how, uh, how you completely replace the advertising uh, industry. Now, having said that, it is funny because advertising is such a narrow, such a narrow area of technology. Um, and the goal of advertising is it's, it's a sort of intermediary good, right? Like the goal isn't – people don't want advertising. They want you to buy your product, right. their product. So there might be ways where companies are better at finding the people who specifically want to buy their product and identifying them without having to go through middlemen. Right. That's possible. And I don't know. We're 10 years – you know, most of these companies are under 10 years old. So we're 10 years or so into this uh, experiment around, you know, largely ad-funded-based – uh, internet ecosystem 10 years from now, I bet it doesn't look the same, um, but I don't know exactly how it'll and, look. And should, do you think you should be paid for your data, that the, the service is enough for you? Or do you think people, because this seems to be a burgeoning movement, yeah. kind of ends up you know uh, melding with, I think, the universal basic income. This is another way to, to you know, it, you know, decrease income inequality is that, you know, paying people for their data. Do you feel, do you feel you, you need that? Do you need uh, to be paid? I, I don't, I don't feel like that. Again, I, th- I feel like there might be ways to do that f- through, uh, you know, micropayments. Like maybe I could post, you know, a blog post or something and then every view that got, I would get paid a little. Um, those business models might, might emerge, but I don't think that as a, as a right, it makes a ton of sense. Many of this, many, much of the ad driven revenue is from observations of other people. Um, and and that's uh, that information is is useful, but it's, it's only useful to the company, right? If I took my slice of information from web browsing and I tried to shop it around to people and tried to sell it, it wouldn't be worth very much. And in fact, um, there's, a, there's a great piece in Wired, I think it came out like two days ago, uh, where a gentleman uh, walks through sort of what, what that would mean revenue-wise um, in the Worldwide, uh, if you took Facebook's complete revenue and you split it up by its users, it'd be twenty-five bucks a pop. So this is not going to make anybody rich. Um, and 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 really, that data is most valuable. Well, I think when they would it's say tw- it all they would say you know two dollars here, three dollars there, and before you know it, you have you know ten dollars. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, and exactly. So anything you would do regular that that should do we ha- is everything in place good enough? We have you know obviously we have the FTC. There's other rules. Do, do, does there need to be any sort of new privacy regulatory regime? Obviously, there's a model we could just I suppose try to adopt from Europe. Uh, what anything that you would recommend? Me? Yeah. So I so I do think that there's pressure right now because of GDPR and CCPA, which is a California law. Mm-hmm. To do something at the federal level, and I, and I uh, that would preempt state state rules, and I think there is room for legislation in this space. I think Congress could clarify what injuries we're talking about here. That is one of the big problems in this case. We already seen lots of bills, we're seeing lots of solutions proposed, but fundamentally, people don't agree on what the specific problems are. You'll hear that privacy is about. Um, ID theft, about targeted advertising, about you know misinformation, about right. election manipulation. Those are all radically different problems. We should probably pick the ones where consumers are actually being injured and we can show that and try to t- target uh, legislation towards that. So things like data breach notification or data security uh, requirements um, could make a ton of sense. Uh, requiring companies to, you know, uh, hold some responsibility when they when they hold sensitive data by consumers i think 
makes a ton of sense. The FTC's approach does that in an inf- in a enforcement-driven way. So if there's a breach that harms consumers, then then the FTC can bring an action. Um, but but there's probably ways that that system could be tweaked, uh, may- maybe by strengthening the uh, ability of the FTC to go after some of these cases, uh, maybe even uh, against third parties, and then also... Uh, Improving the remedies that they can that they can bring to bear, um, uh, perhaps through civil penalties or something like that. So I think there's ways we could beef up the enforcement side that would make a ton of sense, um, and that would get at some of these uh, concerns that people have, both on the hill and out in uh, in you know the populace. Uh, and so we could solve it through some of those issues, through some measures like that. Yeah. Um, as we're recording this, uh, it's probably you know by our time, I think about a day or two ago. You know, there was a report looking at uh, how Facebook moderates content Mm -hmm. and uh, the reporter went and, you know, went to, you know, one of these, you know, um, uh, which I guess are outsourced in the United States. And it just, you know, it it seemed terrible. These, you know, people aren't paid very, they weren't paid a whole lot and they were, they were all traumatized by looking at these Facebook videos that were horrible. So we'd never have to see them. And so I'm sort of confused about what we're supposed to be doing about content moderation, because it sounds like. AI can't do it all, so we need to have people, but yet to have the people do it, it has a bad effect on them. So what are we supposed to be doing about content moderation? Unless it's, unless it's just going to be a free-for-all, which I don't think a lot of people want and certainly the companies don't want, what, what is the solution there? Or do we just live in an imperfect world where uh, there's going to be stuff in, these, in, in, in social media that is, is going to be ugly and we can't, can't get it all and there's going to be people who have not great jobs you know, finding it and the AI is going to goof up sometimes. Right. Where, where, what's the solution there? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I read that piece. Uh, it is a tough job. Um, you know, uh, PC uh, Newton piece. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a little ways through that piece, he does acknowledge, or he does, uh, he does mention some of the that the, s- s- often they're talking about the worst cases that come up. A lot of the moderation that the content that is moderated in those places um, is. Yeah, of the type that's like just more irritating or offensive and they have to screen that out. But it's a tough job. And in fact, I thought immediately like, oh, Mike Rowe should do an episode of Dirty Jobs about like these content moderators because right. it seems like a tough job. Um, I, you know, because these companies are under pressure to do something about bad content online, um, I, I don't know. It's not easy. Content moderation is really hard. The rule, the rules around what is... Um, what might be, uh, you know, offensive to a community, even even in the under the First Amendment, is pretty complicated, and it really depends on the community. And so you can just imagine how difficult it is to do that when you have millions and billions of pieces of content pouring in from all around the world in in lots of different areas. So I don't I don't think there's a good solution. I do know that it's the sort of thing that. Um, uh, government r- rules around probably aren't going to improve. This is the sort of hard problem that I think the companies are best suited to try to figure out how to do. Um, uh, and they'll is there a way of giving me more power? Should be the company or the government? There's ways to consider that that I could have more power. I could, you know, there could be some sort of filters, and right. I could determine, you know, what you know what will freak me out, and what right. won't freak me out. I don't know if we if we have all those. If you have to bring in the companies, can do. If you have to bring in third parties, but. It, it, from what you know about the technology, yeah. is there any way of, of just giving me more inf- uh, more power to do that as a, as a user of Facebook or Twitter or what have you? Yeah, I, well, I mean, the 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 greatest uh, power you have is well choosing to use the platform or not. But then also, right. you know, who you follow uh, 
and and what content you have in that. And then you can also change settings on Facebook and Instagram about how often you see posts by people that you don't follow, stuff like that. Twitter is a different animal, uh, but you can even, even you can even change things there. And then there is technology like like safe search, like most of the search engines have like a safe search feature mm-hmm. where the results will all be more or less family friendly uh, and you won't get anything that's, but it, you know, it's a tough problem just because, you know, different people are offended by different things and um, trying to, we, we want to let people express themselves online and find the audiences that aren't offended by it. But while letting the people who, who are, um, you know, choose, you know, choose diff- different channels so that they can, they can avoid that. All right. Um, Antitrust. Uh, it almost seems now that the debate is, you know, when do we start breaking up uh, these companies? Uh, most of the focus, I think a lot of it's on Facebook and, and Google, um, primarily because it seems obvious to the person how you would break them up. You know, Google, oh, just get rid of YouTube. Right. Uh, Facebook, get rid of WhatsApp uh, and Instagram. Do you think the case has been made uh, that these companies um, should be broken up? And if not, is the problem with you that you're using the wrong standard to judge these, right. that you're creating an impossible, that using this, which we'll talk about, this consumer welfare standard yeah. under that, it's impossible to break these companies up because, because they're offering products for free and consumers right. have, and you, you can't break them up, but yet you're ignoring the fact that they're big and they're seemingly out of control. Right. Facebook can't, they can't control what's on its site and uh, they're going to influence the political system. So... What do you make of the case for breaking up these companies at this point in time? Well, I've been spending a lot of time at the intersection of antitrust and privacy. And on that particular issue, the breaking up solution is is particularly weird because there what you're saying is one company can't handle my information. One company that's big that has a ton of resources can't properly handle my information. But if I break it up, then two companies will have my information. Well, I think that, that, that there would be, <laughs> that, that be more incentive because right. if you don't like how Facebook's handling it, you can't go to the other Facebook. Right. The other Facebook's also owned by Facebook. Right. And that third Facebook, they're owned by Facebook, right, too. Right, right. So if there was somebody else out there, maybe they would. Maybe, maybe yeah. there would be more incentive for them. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's possible, but I don't think that you would get rid of the inf- the fact that this company has some of your information still. So that as a post hoc solution, maybe in an emerging market, that would help. Right. But, you know, I, I think overall, I, I don't – I haven't seen a case that – these companies are of the size and it's the size uh, and not their behavior that is causing um, consumer injury, right? And so uh, the, I think the consumer welfare standard is a good judge. It's the, the, if the ultimate goal is to make consumers better off, and I think that's what we're trying to do in both our consumer protection uh, work, uh, the FTC's consumer protection work and uh, its antitrust work, the ultimate goal is to create a market that that makes consumers better off. Then that's a good metric, right? We should be we should be trying to find out if something harms consumers before we stop it. Um, if the goal is just to help, you know, smaller competitors, that's a different. You know, antitrust went a different way a long time ago on that issue, and 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 the economics behind it are pretty clear. If you're helping small competitors, uh, that often comes at the expense of the consumer, and so. It would take a big shift in antitrust law to go from saying, well, we're not going to pay attention to the consumer anymore. We're going to pay attention to the, the small competitor, and we're going to break up companies so that small competitors uh, can, can compete better. Well, I, I, sorry, on, the, the on the small the competitor, yeah. uh, there's one theory that, that these companies are really hurting innovation because 
A, they're so big and powerful mm-hmm. that you that no one would dare, you know, try to create their own rival search engine or an online retailer or a um, a social media company that would go head to head with Facebook and and Google and Amazon. So one, so you're not getting those future competitors because they're right. too big and powerful. Or B. Uh, a few fools out there are starting up companies which are competitors, but then they then they get bought up right away. So we never get to see what they would do. Uh, the Instagram case being uh, maybe the, uh, the the classic case where they get they get they get purchased. So what about that? I think it's called the kill zone theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think of the kill zone theory? Well, I haven't looked at the numbers a ton, but I think that uh, it's really hard to know how you would solve that problem. Um, you know, I, I, I think they know how it's all that, uh, well, which, which is stopping, stopping, stop Facebook from buying anybody, right. stop Google from buying anybody. Uh, if you're not going to break them up, at least stop them from buying anymore. Well, I, I would say uh, in Silicon Valley, um, one of the major motivators to create something new is the possibility that you'll get bought. Very often running a company uh, is is challenging. It's not necessarily the skill set that these entrepreneurs have. Uh, often they're, they're tech they're tech savvy. They're trying to create a new business model. They're experimenting with that. And they can try lots of different things. And then uh, the ones that succeed uh, can then get operationalized by companies that have more, you know, more experience in, in doing that and also have a, a giant consumer base. So one of the big benefits, I think, of Instagram, Facebook was that, that you could start uh, – you could use uh, the same services across both of them. You could use the same infrastructure behind, and so that made that that made that business uh, easier to scale uh, in a way that, if they were competing separately, would have been uh, a big investment and probably would have been much harder for them to do. And so, but, but the fact that if you if you had a that if you had an idea for I have a, I have a great search engine idea and I'm going to take it to Google. Um, the theory is that no one would give you any money because that just seems like a, you know it's it's a, it's a hundred billion dollar company. They could throw you know engineers by the by the gross at the issue right. that you know so that that that's a problem. I, that you couldn't get funded to do that. That that's a problem. Well, I mean, you you might get funded by Google to do it internally, right? If it's a good idea. Uh, and to me, the ultimate question, if the ultimate question is how are consumers better off? In that case, maybe that specific entrepreneur might go in to do something else. And we've seen this in the past. Historically, in the tech sector, um, uh, the competition comes from somebody who is doing something in a separate vertical, right? right. So, so we talk about like Google and Facebook and, and Microsoft uh, and Amazon, and uh, all of these companies are on some issues not competitors. On other issues, they're total competitors. So all of them have like a cloud service right. product. Um, and and it's the scale that they have um, in their own particular vertical that lets them compete very, very uh, aggressively against the, the companies in these other verticals. And so um, so I would expect, you know, the next big the next big challenge to these these big companies isn't going to be a product that looks anything particularly like right. theirs. It will be another sort of market where that is identified and maybe even created, and where there's strong network effects, and that first mover advantage will will let them. Uh, how let them how do we know that that the consumer is no longer benefiting, or is benefiting less? Would it be? That these company all of a sudden these companies aren't spending so much on R and D. What would be what would be the sign that you're like? I think now we have a problem. No, that's a great question, um, and it's a, I think it's a hard one. Uh, um, uh, you know, we could look at the number of people uh, you know who are going into these sectors. We could look at the number of products coming out. We could, 
you know, we could see if there's a slowdown in innovation, uh, however you measure that. And that can be very difficult. If you're just measuring heads, that's pretty hard. If you're measuring new products, uh, maybe that's a little easier. Or you could just look at them, look at the markets and see where investment's going. And, and I, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that mm-hmm. about how we would be able to identify, um, uh, you know, the sorts of harms that we would start to get concerned about. But I do think that antitrust is currently aimed at the asking that question, mm-hmm. right? So um, the, the, we should be looking to see how we would measure injury. And just because it's a hard question to answer doesn't mean um, we should change the standard to something that's more like the old structural, like, well, you're just, you know, you're just, you have too much of the market and therefore right. we're going to break you up. Right. Um, people say, right. well, look how much of search Google right. has. That that on its face, they should be broken up. Right. Right. Some people say that. And, and yeah. And, and for online search, Google is very big. Right. Um, but the, but in the U.S. under antitrust law, it's not, it's not uh, even illegal to be a complete mon- monopoly and they aren't that. And so, um, so we have to look at the harm. And I think that, I think that makes a ton of sense. It, it helps us uh, ground our decisions in something that's not just pure, you know, political animus. We started this conversation by talking about how a lot of this backlash might be driven by uh, political choices that were made by these companies. And uh, I, I don't think we want an antitrust law that, that is uh, making decisions about how companies can operate based on, uh, based on political motivations. And so I think antitrust right now is, is pretty grounded in economics, and that's, that's a should, good thing. Should, face, should Facebook be allowed to buy Instagram and WhatsApp, or is that looking back, maybe not? Well, I think if I'm getting those this seem correctly, like those, not, those, those seem like they would have been obvious. I may not be getting this correct, but I think Instagram was 10 employees when Facebook bought it. It was much smaller. It would have been very difficult for any enforcement agency to look at a company that's 10 employees big and say, you know what? This is the one we should hold out. This is the one we shouldn't let. And who knows what would have happened to that company if, if Facebook hadn't been able to scale it. Really? Uh, as we uh, wind down here, I think I had one or two questions from Twitter. Do you see a move away from Facebook similar to MySpace to the Facebook transition? It, it, I, which I think is another way of saying, uh, are the, is, is Facebook a forever company? Is Google a forever company? Will these, or they, will they go the way of sort of Yahoo and MySpace, which seemed like unbeatable, had unbeatable market positions right. and turned out not to. Yeah, there's a terrific Time uh, magazine cover that has MySpace, and I think it says, MySpace, will anybody be able to crack this monopoly? Right. And, um, my my favorite is uh, the search, like the browser wars are over. The, no, the search right. wars are over. Search wars are Yahoo over. Is, it was Yahoo as yeah, a winner. Right, right, right. 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 These aren't forever companies. I mean, I think the products will continue to, to evolve. I think we've already seen a sort of change in... Uh, adoption of Facebook, for example, the traditional Facebook platform by young people. I personally don't use my Facebook platform that much. I use Messenger a lot, but um, I don't use the, the regular Facebook feed that often um, just because it, it wasn't, it's not that useful to me anymore. And so, so I do think that these products will evolve or people will find different ways, uh, different products to use. Uh, and I think that's part of the natural market process. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it. All right. So, and, the, and this uh, second question is related. Can an open source distributed blockchain? I knew we'd going to get a yeah. blockchain question. Uh, blockchain social network kill these these established companies? Can they? Uh, well, that is that is that the technology that will change the game? Well, I think there's a ton of potential in blockchain. Um, maybe not for the social media app. I I don't know. I mean. Uh, maybe maybe that's one of the the sort of competitors that comes out of the woodwork for for these companies, uh, but you know the fundamental premise of blockchain is is distributing authority across the network, um, and that has a lot of potential to uh, 
decentralize some of these challenges. Now, it will bring its own challenges. Imagine content moderation when there is nobody to ask to moderate. So you get a whole nother set of uh, challenges. But I, I do think trade-offs, that that model, Neil. Trade-offs. Always you don't, you, trade-offs. You don't, uh, yeah. Something activists don't like talking about. Yeah. There's trade-offs to all these solutions. <laughs> There's always trade-offs. And I, and I do think that... Uh, I do think that these these models, uh, the blockchain-based models, do have a lot of uh, interesting governance implications, and I, I think we will see a lot of innovation in that space, so I'm looking forward to it. My guest today has been Neil Chilson. Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.